Back in July, Julie Fitzinger of Next Avenue sent out the following invitation to her readers. We are seeking original essays with an insightful perspective on aging. Share a personal perspective with fellow readers about what it means to act your age. Tell us how you have found resilience in difficult times. How has growing older surprised you? What is the story you want to tell? When Next Avenue began planning this initiative almost a year ago, we had no idea where the world would be today. We simply wanted to provide our readers with the opportunity to write an essay about their lives that reflected a particular moment in time. Right now, this idea seems especially meaningful. And the words of acclaimed writer Joan Didion, 85, ring even more true. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. From Isabel Allende, write what should not be forgotten. Ernest Hemingway, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. And, of course, this. If I waited for perfection, I would never write a word. And that was from Margaret Atwood. Nobody's story is perfect, just as no one's life is perfect. Every day at Next Avenue, we tell the stories of what makes us different and where we share commonalities. It is our hope that readers will glimpse themselves in someone else's story, find a nugget of information they need, or discover a fresh perspective on an issue relative to aging. Perhaps the messages from the authors just mentioned are even pertinent today. I will share six of those readers' essays, all written before the events of January 6th, all heartfelt, some poignant, some humorous, some sad, all thought-provoking. Perhaps it is time for us to write as well, to reflect on a particular moment in time. The first story is Still Learning After All These Years by Barbara Snow. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, speaking at the National Press Club in 2018, quoted Robert Frost, The older I get, the younger are my teachers. Maybe Madeleine and I have the same teachers. Dealing with COVID-19 and the results of the systemic racial disparities in our country, while watching our nation teetering on a tightrope, between democracy and authoritarianism, it would be easy for me to slip into a feeling of despair that nothing will be right again. But here's where I luck out. I live in an elegant, slightly quirky, 80-year-old inner-city apartment complex in Minneapolis. Made up mostly of young tenants, many of them recent college graduates. A lot of them are deeply in debt for their education and work multiple jobs, including maintenance and cleaning in our complex. I've come to know most of these youngsters, and while my first impulse was to share all 66 years of my life experiences and advice with them, I've quickly learned that they offer me much more wisdom if I just shut up and listen. For example, I've learned that those with the least to give, give the most. During the protests over the murder of George Floyd, I watched as they formed groups to keep tabs on what was happening in our neighborhood, stood watch through the night, and then went out in the morning to help clean up the streets that were at the epicenter of the looting. They continued to demonstrate their commitment to humanity 
throughout the summer by cooking and delivering much-needed meals to the homeless encampments that sprung up in our parks as a result of the economic disaster that unfolded because of COVID-19. I've learned that a portfolio of investments means nothing to most of these young adults, but making enough tips from a waitressing job to help pay for food for someone else is an investment of inestimable worth. I have watched them collect clothes, diapers, and hygiene products to give away in the neighborhood. I'm lucky because my portfolio allows me to invest a little cash in their good work, which is a win-win. I've learned that as disheartened as the news makes me some days, if I just go outside into our apartment courtyard and hang out for a while, I am sure to feel a little better. Everyone was out there on a fine summer day, tending a garden plot or practicing the violin or working on a drawing. Their generosity of spirit and willingness to accept people of every age, creed, color, or sexual identity gives me hope that despite the ugliness I see on all the news outlets, there is a spirit in the young that won't be broken by our fears, our prejudices, and our acquired bad behaviors. I've learned that I have nothing to teach them and every reason to follow their lead. Barbara Snow is retired from financial services, a writer of essays and plays, and a temporarily grounded traveler who lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Of this essay, Barbara says, I wanted to acknowledge the change in my life from leader to follower. I also wanted to acknowledge the importance of the voices and commitments of the younger generations. And if we elders just listen for a change, they have a lot they can teach us. The next story is Someone Else's Happiness by Mel Thomas. With the exception of becoming a musician throughout the 1940s and 50s, my childhood dreams were always discouraged. Me, I want to design cars when I grow up. Pop, colored people don't get those kinds of jobs. Me, I want to be a fashion designer. Mom, you'll have to work ten times harder because you're colored. At age seven, Grandma and I came across a photo of a colored man relaxing in a purple chair. With his legs propped upon a matching ottoman, he read a newspaper in the shade of a vibrant green floor plant. A variety of brightly colored paintings covered the walls. The article referred to him as a bachelor, and it was the first time something spoke to me that didn't have a voice. Me, that's what I want to be when I grow up, a bachelor. Grandma, oh no, baby, don't you want to work in the insurance company and have a family like your daddy? Evidently, I thought there was something wrong with being a bachelor, and the last thing I ever wanted to do was hurt Grandma's feelings. My heart sang its first sad song, and I sighed. I guess so. At age eight, I began looking for a potential wife. Throughout high school, I performed in a band, surrounded by dishonesty, inflated egos, and stifling creativity. I wanted to quit, but regardless of my unhappiness, I always allowed my parents to talk me into staying. Mom and Pop, you're making good money. Me, it's not about the money, it's about the fun of entertaining. By age 22, I was working at the same insurance company as Pop, gotten married, became a daddy, and living someone else's happiness. 
Twenty years later, I had two failed marriages, came out as a gay man, drank lots of booze, then got sober. Seventy-two years after that conversation with Grandma, I'm now living on one of the top floors in a high-rise apartment. The walls are covered with various African masks and paintings. Vibrant green plants dot the floors of my living room and bedroom. There's no purple chair, but there is a baby grand piano and loads of serenity. I have no regrets and countless blessings. Two sons, four grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren so far. Today, I'm a retired musician, interior designer, and health educator. Though not famous, I've written a play and seen it performed by a local theater group. I've come to realize, one, I cannot base my happiness upon the wishes of well-meaning loved ones, and two, gut-wrenching honesty and acceptance may hurt in the beginning, but it also sets me free. Mel Thomas, 79, who lives in Connecticut, calls himself a three-time retiree, musician, interior designer, and health educator. Mel is a gay activist who served as Grand Marshal of Connecticut Pride 2000. He says, I'm always filled with melancholy when revisiting these days of dealing with societal and parental expectations and my reality. My hope is to educate people of the fact that we are all mere drops of water in the ocean of God. The next essay by Ron Block is I Thought We Had Failed. A candid father-son conversation reveals unexpected truths. Are you paying attention to the shooting in Milwaukee? Came the text from my 35-year-old son, Eric. I swiftly replied with a sad emoji and a broken heart. I followed that up with I Thought We Had Done Better. It is true, I thought, my circle of friends all brought up in the tumultuous 60s and 70s collectively strived to hand a better world to our own children than the one we had lived in. Our lives now have been so changed over these last four years. It is heartbreaking to watch the rise of racial tension, intolerance, and growing division across this land we had so much hope for. My eldest, Eric, has been a difficult relationship to nurture and grow. His teenage years were difficult for him due to a bitter, angry divorce between his parents. His early rebellion and quick anger have made communication difficult. He now has children of his own, and it's amazing to watch his approach to parenting. He wants them to know about the world, the good and the bad, the dark and the light, his exposure to them of certain topics makes me cringe a bit, but I do not say a word. Sometimes I will ask questions about what he hopes they will learn, but I do not challenge him. I think sometimes he fancies himself a hardcore urban rap artist, which the whiteness of his skin, along with his chestnut red hair, should be its own proof that is not the case. Still, I overlook the approach I am not fond of and know that at heart he has a good mind, a terrific sense of right and wrong, and a strong desire to protect his girls. I follow up our next exchange with a phone call. When he answers, I apologize. When he says, what for? The only answer I have is so many things. I tell him that my generation failed his. 
We had such hope to be able to fix issues that were important to us. Poverty, race, women's rights, hunger, and climate change, for starters. We were sure that our children would inherit a more loving, intelligent, and tolerant way of life. We patted ourselves on the back far too soon. At the other end of the line, I was met with silence. Finally, I said, I am so sorry you don't have the world that you should have. We failed you. Without skipping a beat, he replied, Dad, remember when you brought me into the voting booth to pull the lever for Bill Clinton? Or the time you brought me to help balloting for a local election? And what about all the movies, books, theater, and television you shared that showed tolerance, exposed injustice, and worked to bring people together? My eyes started to fill with tears. You did not fail us, Dad, he continued. You taught us. We listened and absorbed. We heard, and now we know. It's our turn. Ron Block is a librarian in Cleveland. He is passionate about food and how it affects the lives of so many. Ron was a past judge for the James Beard Cookbook Awards and the recipient of a 2020 Mover and Shaker Award from Library Journal. He is the proud father of two and grandfather of four. Writing this piece... This essay, based on an actual exchange, was cathartic, he says. The piece brought me a great deal of hope and awareness that we have extensive influence, even in troubling times. Now, The Last Gift by Catherine Scherff. I had just finished my work for the day on a beautiful Tuesday in May when my stepmother, Amal, called to say my father had a heart attack. We had false alarms before. My father was 87 and went to the gym three times a week. As I slowly drove to New York on the New Jersey Turnpike, it got darker and darker. A doctor called about his condition at 8 p.m. from the CCU, Coronary Care Unit. I had been annoyed about another heartburn false alarm, but now I was terrified. I was still racing on the turnpike at 9.30, when I felt and sensed a momentary black empty space superimposed on the black sky. I felt my father leave. There was an emptiness, an exhalation. At 11 p.m., I met my exhausted family at the little hospital in Rockland County, New York. No one said anything about my father. I pretended to myself that he was alive and that I hadn't felt him leave earlier that night. In the CCU, he still had the endotracheal tube in. I touched his chest, which had faint burn marks from the defibrillator. He was still warm. I sat by his right side and took his hand. He had the familiar disfiguring scar between his thumb and first finger from a lab accident in his 30s. He had died at 9.30. The next afternoon, we met at the funeral home in Sleepy Hollow, New York, My brothers, Gamal and Tarek, and my sister Aubrey and I entered the lower level of the funeral home. My father lay on his back, naked, with a towel over his lower abdomen, for modesty. He looked like he was in the middle of a nap, except for the rigor mortis that had his arms bent at the elbow. His skin, at 87, was so beautiful and smooth. Aubrey was crying and left. My brothers and I stood next to his body. An imam, one who leads prayers in a mosque, from New York City, stood at my father's feet, which were over a sink. The imam said, she can't stay here, meaning me. Gamal said, she's our sister and she is staying. 
The imam said, it is haram, forbidden. Gamal repeated, she's staying. The imam shook his head and shrugged. Then he began to pray and said, I will teach you how to wash your father. We washed him, soaping and rinsing, going in a prescribed order. It was soothing to soap his smooth, strong chest and back and arms. I washed his beautiful face and his curly hair. Then we dried him with clean towels. The imam showed us how to wrap him in white sheets. I kissed his forehead one more time. I folded the sheets over his face. We carried him to the coffin and laid him on his right side so that he would face Mecca. I did not expect this ritual washing to be comforting, but just something to endure. I felt it was an unexpected gift my father gave me. Catherine is a 61-year-old physician in Philadelphia who was born in Egypt and raised in New Jersey. She believes growing up as an outsider taught her empathy. Her mother was active in the women's liberation movement, and Catherine spent time during her residency working for human rights agencies in Cairo. She wanted to relay the unusual and surprising experience she describes in her essay. I did not expect to be comforted by religious rituals, Catherine says. Next by Celeste Helene Shantz, Strata. A lifelong love for nature offers solace during trying times. I am not well known to my neighbors. I am an older woman who could sink into these autumn hills like some broken-down tractor, and perhaps no one would notice. I am the eccentric person in baggy sweatpants and the stillness of morning, climbing awkwardly down to a creek's ledge with my notepad and pencil. As a small child bullied by classmates, I'd come here to hunt for brachiopods and horn corals, trying not to slip on the slime of algae stones in the cold shallows. Now I come for the joy of sinking my toes in gravel, mud, and rill, to hear the cerceration of fresh air above a quaking aspen branch. There's a sense of something prehistoric here. Sit long enough and you will enter its brookish mind. There's a stone memory of canes, kettles, and moraines. You feel the glacier rising 1,000 feet in the air. It's antediluvian, an ancient ocean swimming through forked white oaks. You taste the metallic mineral tang from wet sediment slabs, striated the color of ammonite and smoke. You can imagine Haudenosaunee traders who once walked this creek, tracing maps made of water. I record the bruised vertigris of a mallard's neck catching daylight, the wingspan of turkey vulture like a black Jurassic shadow brushing against the afternoon sun. I inhale the pretricor of rain that passed through the hemlocks yesterday. There's pollution on the banks, a face mask tossed in the grass. I'm privileged to be here, but it's not always a paradise. Each day's headlines bear the names of people dying from the virus, now more than 246,000. Hatred services even in this small hamlet. I envision endless apparitions of the bodies of Jamestown slaves, of missing indigenous women, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, staring as they pass by me through the arterial current. I know my actions in this small place can inform what happens in the world, miles away, and what happens miles away can eventually make its way back to me here. My home is dying. I mourn it. 
60% of all animal species on Earth have vanished in my lifetime. I'm living in the sixth extinction during a pandemic and a crisis of man. I must look odd, someone who mutters, digs, scrawls cryptic verses. I stare into space and collect rocks in a bucket, holding each one up to the light. I witness the great green glory of each new morning. Beyond worrisome, sleepless nights, I rise, gray-haired, to walk this visceral ridge of pelvic bone, to step upon these green fields, to lie beneath this wheeling crown of sun, I roll life's syllables into words over my tongue and test the hardness of each. I don't know where I fit into this stratum, where I belong in this cycle within cycles, or even where I fit within these words I write. What do you write about when the world's gone mad? I'll start with my love of one single childhood creek. I'll head out from here. Celesteline Shantz is a poet who lives in the Finger Lakes region of New York State with her special needs son. Celeste works for the public library. Writing this essay was cathartic. To share my love of this small, trickling, wonderful creek where I've gone for years Lovely to celebrate that, yes, but I found myself suddenly tying in our interconnectedness as humans and our responsibilities to each other and to the planet in a wider implication. The final essay, Here They Come Again, is by Susan Coleman Goldstein. Daily walks are giving a couple the chance to reconnect with neighbors. Here they come again. In my memories... Here come the Guzettas, a retired couple, walking around the corner, side by side, on their daily walks in the neighborhood. They slow down when they pass our house, pausing long enough to wave, sometimes stooping down to pet Sydney, our black cat, clapping at my daughter's ability to hula hoop for five seconds, or asking us about our jobs. The Guzettas, both tall and lean, their sneakers hitting the pavement in unison waved to everyone on the street. They knew the names of the kids playing in every yard and the dogs and the cats who lived there. They remembered to ask if your kid was feeling better, if you figured out how to save that bush, and if the cat had her kittens yet. They were a subtle, integral piece that connected our neighborhood together. I've been thinking a lot about the Gazettas, who, ten years ago, moved several hundred miles away to live near their children. Perhaps it's the result of living with this pandemic. We are working from home and living outside in the neighborhood more. My husband and I have started walking the neighborhood again, sometimes a few times each day. And as a result, we are reacquainting ourselves with our neighbors. Did you know that Charles is training his black lab to pass the therapy dog test? Did you know that little Ava, the six-year-old who used to run outside to pet our old dog, is now 16 and driving a car? Did you know that Kay, who must be in her 80s by now, still plants vegetables in her garden with a stable plastic chair, just in case? Our sneakers flap against the pavement as we walk the one-mile route after dinner each night. We don't know everyone's name yet. 
but we wave and say hello to the couple working in their yard, admiring the progress of their stone wall. We know Chris, although we can't remember his wife's name, but we compliment them on their garden this year, and he keeps offering us a big fat cabbage to take home. We know Tony now, who drives his little motorized sports car on his grassy front lawn, and we slow down to ask if he has a driver's license yet, and that always makes him giggle. We are slowly reconnecting with our neighbors, although we haven't reached Gazetta status yet. Still, Charles rushed out of his house last week to tell us that Harry did indeed pass the therapy dog test, and we were so happy for him and Gina stopped us in the middle of the street to joyously wave a photograph of her new rescue dog, arriving by transport any day. We're hoping, when we head down the street after dinner each night, to connect more with these people who live beside us every day. It's 6 p.m. now. We lace our sneakers and grab the dog leash. Here they come again. Susan Coleman-Goldstein of Gardner, Massachusetts, is a former news reporter who has taught basic writing skills at a local community college for 17 years. Susan and her husband have been married for 35 years and have three adult children. Writing this essay was intimidating, she says, adding she worked on it for several weeks before gathering up the courage to submit it. My essay is about making connections in the neighborhood, but that's also the idea behind writing this essay and submitting it here, to make connections with other writers and with other people living in the world. Julie Fitzinger continues with this. The loneliness, isolation, and uncertainty brought about by the pandemic was top of mind for many of our writers, and understandably so, Along with submissions, we asked participants how it felt to tell their story, and those responses were possibly even more gratifying than the stories themselves. You heard some of them already, but here are three other examples. Writing is therapeutic, and I am happy to have the opportunity to share it somewhere other than my journal. During this COVID-19 isolation period, it's important to keep our spirits up. I enjoyed the challenge of writing, and I write to ponder what troubles me, confuses me, or fascinates me. The storytelling journey that began last summer came to a close with the publication of the final three Telling Our Stories pieces. Not only are all 12 stories available at the Next Avenue website, Telling Our Stories, we've now uploaded Audio versions of each essay paired with the written version, featuring the voices of the writers telling their own stories. Within each essay, you will see a box with a photo of the writer and the story title. Click on the box to listen. If you've enjoyed the six essays that I have read, I hope you will read or listen to the remaining ones on the Next Avenue website. One already read on Silver Thread's New Year's program was Toasting the End by Mary Hillard, a blind woman writing about self-isolation. Thanks for listening, and until next week, I'm Kathy Vanskoik.